folks, welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast, The Africanist. Uh, I am your host, Bamba, and today I have very special guests who are going to share with us their experiences as graduate students and recent graduates. And the common denominator of my guests today is that they all work on Africa in some capacities. And these are also very good friends. I uh, spent time with them conferencing and doing other academic activities. So they're very uh, special people to me. The first, our first guest is Dr. Nicholas McLeod. Dr. McLeod completed his uh, doctoral uh, studies in Pan-African studies from the University of Louisville with a concentration on Africa and African diaspora history. Nick, as I call him, uh, has published in various edited volumes, academic journals, and he's also currently revising his dissertation concerning Pan-Africanism and the influence of West Indians on governance in Kwame Krumah's Ghana into a monograph. And he's also, he just joined uh, Ryder University as assistant professor. Congratulations, Dr. McLeod, and welcome to The Africanist. Thank you, Mamba. So our here. second, uh, my second guest is Margaret Rowley. And Margaret is a PhD candidate at Boston University in Ethnomusicology, where she works on Sufism and Islamic sound practices in Senegal. And Margaret holds a master's degree in ethnomusicology and flute performance. And her teaching focuses on music, religion, and politics. Margaret, welcome to The Africanist. Thanks for having me. And my third uh, guest is also from Senegal, Astoufal Gay. And Asu is a PhD candidate in the Department of African Cultural Studies uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She earned an MA in Literary Studies at Université Gaston-Berger in Saint-Louis, Senegal. Her current work investigates how diasporic Senegalese femininities are shaped and negotiated through the concept of jonge, a concept involving a set of practices that idealize womanhood and eroticize femininity. So Asso and I attended the same university, Gaston Berger, and we worked in uh, uh, the English club for several years. So it's, it's always good to see Asso and welcome to uh, The Africanist. Now, my fourth and last guest is Bright Diamfi. Uh, Bright is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Northwestern University. Uh, he, receives, uh, he received a, his BA from the University of Notre Dame and a master's at Oxford. In 2020, he received both the Mellon International Dissertation Research Fellowship and Fulbright Fellowship to support his research in Grenada, Suriname, Ghana, Senegal, and England. Right, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you, my brother. All right. All right, so first question. Graduate school is definitely not easy to, to go through, right? It's very challenging, and, uh, especially during a time of pandemic. So how has the pandemic affected your research in general? I'm going to start with Dr. McLeod. Okay, so I would definitely say the pandemic 
started when I was finishing my dissertation. So I've, I've, I've done a lot in this pandemic. I, it kind of, you know, forced me to finish, you know? Yeah. Um, I was, I was inside, you know, just had to write. I couldn't do anything else, you know? So, um, it was good for me in that way, I, I, I think. Um, and so, you know, really, um, maybe hunkered down and, and finished the dissertation defended in August. Um, and so the summer was, is just a blur just, just, just writing. Uh, and then of course I jumped into, um, you know, a, a teaching position. Uh, and so going through that whirlwind, you know, it's been a crazy semester, just getting on my feet, moving, you know, figuring out, you know, how to be a professor, you know, yeah. on, you know, um, and so because of that, I've been, you know, heavily focused on my, on my teaching, but, you know, now we're on break. Um, uh, and, and I gotta say again, the pandemic I'm inside, I can't do anything else. So I know. I'm going to write, <laughs> you know, so, so I'm getting, I'm getting back to that. So I think, um, I think for, for many people they're they're probably doing the best that they can, you know, given all of the circumstances, different ways that the pandemic is, um, affecting people, uh, uh, but I think for for a lot of scholars, um, it it can can probably be a way for us to to be able to sit with our thoughts and, and get a lot done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Margaret, Astu, and Bright, you you guys are uh, on a different stage of your doctoral research. How has the the pandemic uh, affected your progress in research agenda, Margaret? Uh, I actually started my my research year last January and mm -hmm. my research got completely interrupted by the pandemic. Um, it was the advice of my faculty mentors that I should come back to the U.S. to be closer to my family. Um, and there was just so much uncertainty around what was happening. Uh, so for me, it's been mm -hmm. kind of a derailment. I'm, I'm in, in a process of trying to figure out whether I want to pause my research to try to write the dissertation that I hoped that I could write or completely refocus um, and and do things online. And for me, especially um, as an outsider, it was really important for me to spend time in Senegal, important for me personally and professionally. I just wanted to be there. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it, there's actually been a process of grieving, not being there. And I'm not exactly sure what the rest of my research is going to look like. But for now, um, I'm looking forward to just writing for mm -hmm. hopefully the next six months mm -hmm. um, and doing something productive with this time. And then after that, hopefully I can go back for a long stay. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's, it's unfortunate because the, the pandemic has cut a lot of research or field work uh, short or uh, prevented many people from uh, starting their field works. Asu, how has it been for you uh, research-wise? I can definitely relate to what Margaret was saying because I was originally supposed to start my field work over the summer. I was supposed to be gone by the end of May and I had already made my travel arrangement, everything, and then the pandemic hit. I couldn't travel and I couldn't just sit here and wait because I was at a time where I needed that field work data mm -hmm. to be able to move on along my dissertation. So it was really hard in terms of how you plan things and you so uh, focus on a particular thing and you want that, uh, that specific thing for your own research, but then it 
cannot happen. Mm -hmm. So I had to reshift, kind of rethink my my overall project and do with what I can at that moment, which was to try to kind of relocate the topic to the diaspora instead of focusing it to or like giving it a focus in Senegal and, and things like that. So I did that by trying to find ways I could approach Senegalese people living in the in, in the US. And I've done that via Facebook group, for instance, where I was able to recruit some people and to conduct my interview. So I did not do the participant observation that I was uh, that I originally planned. So I had to kind of deal with what I had at that moment and which was going to online and to do kind of an ethnographic mm -hmm. uh, study for now and see what's going to happen after. Right. You just you just got back from Grenada, yeah. right? So it seems like yeah. the pandemic did not affect your travel plans. <laughs> <laughs> how, has, how has it been for you uh, doing research well, uh, uh, in the midst uh, of a global pandemic? Yeah. So initially, I was able to go to uh, Grenada, as you said. I was there for two months, and uh, the place was very safe. So it was very, very safe. You know, I think over 80% of the people that at least I met were wearing masks and whatnot, zero deaths. So, uh, so it was good. You know, the downside was that uh, Grenada does not have a national archives, you know, mm. so I have to come back to the U.S. because the Grenada's papers are actually in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, National Archives, but then the National Archives are currently closed in the U.S. And I was supposed to make a trip to Suriname to continue, but the borders are also closed, you know. And I was supposed to, like, you know, go to Senegal. Uh, while Senegal's uh, borders are open, the place where I was going to be working at uh, have actually gone on uh, remote. So that has also kind of affected my work. You know, so it's making it like kind of difficult and certain people who I was supposed to interview, unfortunately, have passed away. Right. Oh. So it's like uh, the only good thing from this COVID is when people ask, oh, what is your research about? I just tell them I'm confused, you know, because at this point, <laughs> you don't really know what you're writing about. <laughs> but yeah. it's all, but at the same time, it's also exciting, right, that uh you are able to allow the research unfold, right? And lead you to new and exciting possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. But we are hoping that you know, things will, things will jumpstart uh, quickly. Um, but in the meantime, I've been trying to make sense of the data that I've collected, right? And also read more on uh, Grenadian history. And when time comes and I'm able to like, you know, travel and meet up, Margaret and Asu, like, you know, we can just chill in uh, Suriname. I mean, not Suriname, Senegal, you know? So basically, we all have been uh, affected by the pandemic. But on the other hand, people are also adapting, right? They're, you know, trying to readjust their plans and try to make things work, right? So now, can you guys tell us a little more about your research. I'm sure my audience would be interested to know more about your research agendas and then how it connects to the African continent. Nick? Yeah, so my research, as you said earlier, um, it looks at Pan-Africanism uh, in the context of uh, Ghana, 
and, and looking at Ghana as being sort of a culmination of the um, earlier Pan-African Congress and Pan-African movements of uh, the early 20th century. And mm -hmm. in doing so, I, I look at um, how that transition from, you know, it being a movement um, that's, you know, started in London and ventured across, um, you know, the ocean to the United States and um, back to London and Manchester in 45 um, and how this political leadership um, that's coming about in Africa in, in the 1950s and 60s um, was heavily influenced by the West Indians who, who kind of formulated Pan-African leadership mm -hmm. um, in, in a lot of these movements. Uh, and so looking at the influence of um, West Indian intellectuals on a Kwame Nkrumah, who's the first president of Ghana, um, and how these West Indians were being used um, or recruited to come to Ghana mm -hmm. and to not just live in Ghana, but to help him build the nation with a, with a Pan-African orientation uh, and sort of putting this Pan-Africanism into practice. The shift from it being a movement uh, and an ideology to, to being a, a method for governance and, and nation building. Uh, and so that's um, the direction that you know, my, my dissertation ended up taking. And, and I'll be, um, you know, like you said, revising that into a manuscript. manuscript. Uh, and I kind of um, have a number of other projects on the side with, with similar orientation. Um, but I also look at, uh, in addition to that, um, I look at um, the relationship between Islam and slavery as well. So I've got a couple of secondary projects coming out um, on that, um, specifically on um, the storied Zanz Rebellion um, that took place in ninth century Iraq. Um, it was an African slave rebellion that took place in Iraq in the ninth century, lasted nearly 15 years. Um, and, you know, it's one of the earliest instances of um, racialized thinking or even Pan-Africanism, you know, the mm -hmm. argument can be made. Um, and so, yeah, that's 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 really where where my research, um, I think, rounds out at the moment. You know, and so um, definitely excited to see where that takes me. Very cool. Uh -huh. Margaret, what about you? Um, can you tell us a little more uh, about your research and any current research projects? Yeah, um, I was really, so when I left for field work, I was really um, hoping to let the, the, I guess, field work, although I really don't like that term, but I was hoping to let that research really inform the direction of my work. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I got very interested in during the, during the time that I was there was the lion community. Um, in Senegal, which is the, the smallest of the Sufi brotherhoods in Senegal. Um, I was really interested in their community building, specifically these all night Zagur sessions where everybody just sits all night and sings um, on the beach. Um, so that's something that I remain really interested in. And I'm, I'm asked to your, what you were saying about thinking about shifting your research to the diaspora was really, really resonated with me because I've been wondering about doing the same thing. Um, I know it's a very small community, but um, but that's something I'm interested in. And I started in Senegal being particularly interested in questions of secularism um, and how the the Muslim majority in the country and the Christian minority relate to the governmental 
laicite or secularism that um, could be argued was inherited from France's laicite, but which functions completely differently. Um, mm. So that's that's where I started, um, and that's also kind of where I <laughs> where I got stuck when the pandemic hit. Um, but I was really fortunate to be able to spend the months over the summer um, doing some work on my languages, which I badly needed. So um, so that was a, a blessing as well. Any current research projects like you're working on besides your dissertation? A couple of 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 COVID nineteen research projects. Just asking questions about that, but um, mm -hmm. um, but otherwise hoping to spend the next month now that now that the semester's over, just really refocusing. Yeah, cool. Asu, what about you? What is your research about? So my research is uh, at the intersection of gender, language, sexuality, mm -hmm. and now migration is added to, to these uh, categories. So I'm looking at this uh, Senegalese concept called Jonge, Jonge, which is a cultural practice around womanhood, femininities, and uh, sexuality. So my objective in this uh, project is to look at how this uh, practice is constructed and transmitted through language. What are, uh, how do people learn about it and how is it, uh, how it's related to uh, our understanding of gender within the Senegalese context and how gendered identities are also transplanted to other contexts since I'm looking at the diaspora now I'm looking at how Jonge as a practice can be contextualized and used in different places and transform so I'm really looking at what do they do with it now that they are in the diaspora since um I have this shift to the whole project. And so far I've been able to interview people mm -hmm. to talk about how they learn about it and what their understanding of it is now that they have been in contact with different discourses related to gender and sexuality that comes from the diaspora and how their understanding of it as Senegalese people within the diaspora also informs how they look at the practice back home. So I'm just looking at how this is being transformed, used, uh, negotiated through different places and different uh, contexts. Mm, interesting, interesting. Uh, Bright. So uh, my actually, uh, I'm very excited about Nick's work because I feel like our work basically complements each other. Mm -hmm. So I take off where Nick leaves off, right? So I actually look at uh, Ghanaian intellectuals who actually move outside of Ghana in the wake of Nkrumah's coup, right? Mm -hmm. And carry this Pan-African tradition to different parts of the world, right? So some of them move to the United States, right? So I look at their work in the US, make a commentary about how Africans played a crucial role in the development of black studies, right? Some of these same people also became advisors to uh, different grenade, uh, different like, you know, government um, in, in the Caribbean, specifically uh, Grenada, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at their work in Grenada, I'm looking at their work in uh, Suriname and also in Senegal, right? Those who stayed 
in Ghana, like, you know, moved outside of Ghana, also went to Senegal, right? But I'm telling uh, basically three main stories, right? So one in the U.S., one in uh, Senegal, and then one in like, you know, Latin America, Caribbean as a collective, right? In order to, to make sense of this network, right? And the kind of uh, knowledge that that network produced and why we should care about that network, right? Mm -hmm. So that is what like, I'm trying to like, you know, contribute to the field. That's awesome. You guys have very interesting research projects, uh, definitely way more interesting um, than mine. Um, so back to, you know, the, the, the idea, uh, to the pandemic, but also I, I wanted us to, to talk more about uh, productivity and stress management and what, what is commonly known as uh, stress, um, sorry, uh, imposter syndrome that many graduate students, you know, struggle with. So how, how are you guys uh, navigating those, those issues, especially during this, you know, stressful time? Uh, Nick? I think, I think for me, um, I think the, the imposter syndrome kind of set in as I was um, finishing my dissertation um, in the sense that I was, uh, I kind of got caught up on trying to make the dissertation perfect, um, sort of boxing against invisible opponents, you know, trying to think of every critique that, that would come, that, that would come with the dissertation. Come your way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, that was one thing that I, I kind of got caught up on in the summertime. Um, and, you know, my advisors kind of had to pull me back and say, you know, it, it, your dissertation, no one's dissertation is perfect, you know, and, and so you make an argument and of course you address any, any issues um, or any or anything that you leave out, you know, you address that in, in a manuscript um, uh, later on. But um, definitely there, uh, and, and I think for me, as a, as a recent grad and, and someone blessed to have a, a, a tenure track position, the imposter syndrome kind of set in when I got in the classroom. Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't um, stop, it follows you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, definitely does. And uh, I, I kind of quickly was reminded that, you know, no matter what, as a professor, we always know more than the students, you know? And so uh, I was a bit nervous at first, just because, you know, I'd taught before in, in grad school, but the conditions were a bit different. I was teaching online. Um, I was doing recorded lectures. I found out I hate my voice. <laughs> um like <laughs> like like re recording lectures is is pretty tough <laughs> you know um and so uh i think you know it was it was a struggle at, at first but I, I got used to it hit my stride and, and then i started getting you know my teaching uh observations you know from from my colleagues in my department and you know after you know they would do the observations we'd meet and talk and um, you know, they just be, you know, so commendable, you know, on, on, on the, on the lectures, my teaching styles and while I thought it was a mess, you know, and, <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, that, 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 that was just really, um, reassuring, encouraging, That's uh, and, and, and definitely, definitely let me know that, you know, I'm in my mind, you know, I'm in my head a lot of the time, you know, when, 
when uh for in a lot of situations that we're dealing with and some of that can be you know tied back to grad school and a lot of the insecurities that come from that experience you know and, and so i think it, it's definitely good to and wise to remember that you know we we are definitely more capable and competent than we believe we are or else we wouldn't be in these positions that's true yeah margaret what about you how um, how are you trying to navigate these um issues stress productivity uh imposter syndrome if you know you've you've ever experienced it yeah i mean before i started the phd in the ethnomusicology i was i was a flute player for like 15 years um and there's a lot of imposter syndrome in in classical music um it's a tough field and so i i was used to that um i mean i guess you never get used to it i wasn't really used to it but it um it has followed me like nick was saying it's it's you know followed me straight into this and into the classroom and everywhere um and i feel like before the before the pandemic hit in sort of the before times in normal life mm-hmm. um i had a system of ways for dealing with stress the stress of the degree and stuff and and that has all been rearranged um mostly because i realized that most of my stress management came from spending time with my colleagues and um being in rooms packed full of people um so that's been an interesting navigation um and i feel like there's the the way to maybe the way that i found is most helpful for navigating the stress and imposter syndrome is just to try to dig into what i'm working on so I, as long as i focus a lot on reading um and research and trying to broaden the mm-hmm. the materials that i have then i feel better about the whole thing it seems to help cool astu what about you has it been an you know has productivity been an issue or stress management and imposter syndrome um i feel like i mean for me in terms of the imposter syndrome it comes when i'm asked to talk about my research or say <laughs> anything that is related to, to what i do i feel like that's where uh, i feel it the most in writing i don't really kind of encounter it because i feel like i have access to the data and i'm just like reading it and using my own understanding of it it's fine if you don't agree with the way i'm doing it mm-hmm. but i feel like whenever i'm asked to talk and how you know because the type of topic i'm dealing with is um is very kind of controversial in many ways because people will come and ask so where's the agency here you know so those type of thing and you're trying to argue that maybe the question of agency doesn't look the same for everybody depending on their context they might have a different understanding of what you know agents is or what how it should look like mm-hmm. so i think in in that way it comes like you question yourself you question uh the argument that you you're trying to push and everything but but as far as the writing process i feel like i've been able to to write actually over this uh over this course of the of this uh, the pandemic i've been able to start my data analysis and at least get 
things going. So I think in that way, uh, it's fine. And I think one other thing that I struggle with is coming from a francophone, uh, you know, yeah. university, like a country background and everything. So you still have that. Do I have enough control over the language? You know, mm -hmm. am I, do people understand me the way I want to be understood, et cetera, et cetera. And one last thing that I, um, that I can add to that is related to the fact that uh, in terms of how you 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 present your work to to the people and who is reading your work, who is uh, having access to it, what type of judgment they will have, and this idea that just because you're Senegalese and you're working on Senegal you're an insider and you know everything about Senegal, which is very difficult in my case because those identities for me are not mm -hmm. fixed because I've been an outsider and I've been an insider at times, you know? Yes. So those things also are very tricky to navigate. Yeah, interesting. Right. What about you? How are you managing all these um, issues, stress, productivity, and imposter syndrome? You know, for me, uh, in terms of like the stress, right? Uh, I try to just take it a day, you know, day by day. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend who was telling me that like all he did was just work and he did not really eat and got ulcer, you know? So it's like, man, like these things are very serious, you know? Uh, so sometimes like talking to people, right, actually helps. Because then you begin to realize that everybody is struggling, right? Because we perform so much that we perform productivity, right? Oh my God, did I write three books? I'm doing this and that, like, you know, like, uh, you know, let's chill, you know? And also, like, so so that's one thing, like, you know, having a cohort of people who are, we actually realize, hey, we are struggling, right? Acknowledging that this is like, you know, a time of uh, pandemic, right? If we can do something like that is great. Right. But days that we can uh, also take off is also perfect. So one thing that I've been doing to also like move around these things is redefining what productivity means to me. Right. Productivity can mean like me talking to my friends. It just even about history, about things that I already know. Right. Mm -hmm. I see it's like, you know, impacting knowledge. Right. Me watching documentary, me talking to like, you know, the people at the grocery store, whatnot, seeing them as knowledge producers. So like, I'm looking at every aspect, right, as a level of, you know, being productive, right? In that way, like, it shifts the stress, right? And also just sometimes looking at, like, you know, like, oh, the kind of background that I come from, right? And looking at, oh, my God, I have come far, right? So in that sense, because people, they're not thinking, you know, one could have made it to this extent. I relax. I appreciate how far I've come, you know? And like, then continue on, right? Because I think that, that that is how, you know, things have been working for me. But I think really acknowledging that we cannot work as normal as we normally would, because at the end of the day, it's still a pandemic, you know? I've had close people who have died, you know? So what are we rushing to, right? So now some of the things that I've been really sitting with is what is the meaning of life? Like, how do we appreciate life? You know, how do we live and appreciate the present? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something that I've really been kind of dealing with, right? To kind of shift 
from the from the stress. All right. But at the end of the day, we still have to produce. But just taking it at the time, also also thinking about uh, when I slow down, looking at the job market right now is is very tough. All right. So that also gives me a kind of like balance that I shouldn't kill myself because where's the job market, you know? So like, you know, trying to, so whatever stories I can tell myself to kind of balance out, I do, you know, and I, I believe those stories and I kind of relax because I, I had, I had, I developed some serious back pains, you know, uh, earlier this year, because I was studying for my comms and it's just like, because you wake up panicking, you're so yeah. stressed. You know, it's not easy at yeah. all. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So that's no, no, you guys are, are quite, uh, you're right. Uh, you, you have to, sometimes we, we have to learn to, how to relax, right? It's very easy to get caught up in uh, the, the pandemic is crazy and stressful enough, mm -hmm. right? And on top of that, if you add research and publication mm -hmm. and job hunting, you know, job hunting in itself is, is a full-time job. And like you said, the market is is very depressed right now, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's very easy to to be you know depressed along with the market when you see that there's nothing out there, right? Mm -hmm. Almost nothing. So yeah, it's, it's definitely important to learn to relax and and, and enjoy ourselves, right? And uh, so to, to still. Um, remain on this subtopic of you know challenges in, in grad school i i want us to talk more about uh other difficulties that uh graduate students especially doctoral students encounter right uh whether it's lack of funding uh heavy teaching load uh for instance when i was in in grad school I, I had a crazy teaching load, right? I was teaching five classes a year, right? And I had on 60 students on average uh, every semester. I would teach two classes in the spring, two in um, the fall, and then one uh, in the summer, right? And sometimes I had 70 students, and on top of that, I was taking three classes, three required classes. So... It, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it definitely, you know, uh, took a toll on me because I had those duties and then I had to um, do my own school work, working on publication and then mm -hmm. trying to figure out funding for research and stuff. So it can be it can be a lot for us. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the biggest challenges you guys uh, have faced or continue to face? In, in the completion of your degrees? Um, so I think for me, one of the biggest things was the, the work-life balance, you know, being, being a grad student and, um, you know, kind of not getting lost in that experience and um, experiencing life. Um, you know, the first year of my, my PhD um, program, uh, my son was born. And so that was a very, um, very stressful time, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, um, getting used to, you know, being a, being a PhD student, what that meant, um, you know, going down this, going down this path, 
um, but also, you know, you know, learn how to be a professor, learn how to be a father at the same time. Um, and so finding the balance between those two things um, was, was pretty tough. Um, because obviously my my son's gonna come before everything, you, you know. So so it it, it it was tough at first. Um, then of course, you know, a, a conversation that's that's always ongoing is you know how how underpaid grad students are, you know, and and so yes. you know dealing with that and you know having to find additional sources of income, you know, uh, that was that was definitely a challenge throughout my grad school experience and you know luckily I I was able to um you know pr- prevail on all of those fronts and um you know I was always working an odd job <laughs> throughout all of grad school you know so um I, I was I was blessed to be able to to get that done but also um you know I had I had good good mentors and, and advisors throughout all of this as well that were able to to keep me on track so I think um definitely being a parent in grad school was tough um and then I think formulating my research topic um and then seeing that process through writing that dissertation um you know that's that's something that we can all all relate to uh and and so I think funding uh was was definitely was definitely a, a tough thing for me and I was able to you know get enough funding to be able to you know do my field my field work um here in the states in the in the West Indies um and in in Ghana I saw bright when I was in Ghana doing my research as well um and so uh that was you know I, it was a struggle but I was able to to get it done you know and, and and so I'm I'm thankful for that and then of course looming over all of that was the job market you know over everything that we do we we kind of have this bleak outlook when it comes to the job market yes. so and it's it's a conversation that that you know has to be had you know and 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 so i think you know balancing that with classes with teaching with trying to do your own research was also a lot because it's a, it's a you know it's a completely different different uh different game i think um and so being on the job market was pretty tough. I mean, you know, applications take a long time to do, <laughs> you know, they as, do. as you know, do. as you know. And so, you know, every school, every department, they're asking for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to construct your letters different, you know, differently for, for each, um, each job posting. Uh, it could be, and you, and you have to be flexible too. You know, you, if you're a historian, you can't just apply for history jobs. That's right. <laughs> you know, you got to, you got to apply for, you know, African-American studies, uh, black studies, African studies, diaspora, you know, and, and, you know, I was, I was told at least to cast a wide net. And so even if, even if your, my research, you know, was related to the job, you know, in the, in the smallest degree, you know, to, to send the application out, you know, and so it's very time consuming and you know prepping for job interviews as well it's stressful takes a long time you know um and that imposter syndrome it kind of creeps right back in yeah you know um and and so uh yeah that was that was that was definitely tough i mean grad school grad school as a whole is is, is tough very isolating mm. you know um but you know it's it's moments moments like these and, and like Bryce said you know talking to friends and 
um, you know, conferencing, those sorts of things that are always encouraging, you know, Definitely. through the whole process. Mm-hmm. Margaret, what about you? I I think a lot of the issues that I've dealt with probably are are the same that we all deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, our our university um, pays pretty well for like maybe mid Missouri, but um, for a major East Coast city, it's it's tough to make ends meet. We don't have summer funding as an option. Our health insurance is really limited. Um, we don't have an option for dental insurance. Um, but otherwise, uh, I mean, our teaching loads, I think it sounds like we have a very different experience. I think we're required um, five semesters of teaching or TAing, and then anything additional is just additional experience. Mm-hmm. Um, if we get assigned to two classes in a semester, we don't get paid anything extra. There's no, um, there's no additional funding for any of that. Um, I think for the entire university, which has, I'm not exactly sure how many grad students in the humanities, but definitely over a thousand. Um, the university offers the opportunity to compete for six paid internships over the summer. Um, six. Six. Wow. Although I don't, I don't completely have my numbers right on how many of us there are, but in my department alone, which is one of the smallest, we are 16. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's been. A little bit of a challenge and then of course like nick was saying the job market um but you know then again in many ways i've been really fortunate that the the stipend that we have is guaranteed for five years um it's enough to get by um if you have a lot of roommates and luckily i like having a lot of roommates so that's fine yeah. um <laughs> uh and and my faculty and colleagues are just the best. Like I, there's no way that I could make it through without them. I've been really lucky to have faculty who are, mm-hmm. um, who are wonderful. So that's really mitigated the challenges. Um, and of course, we continue to sort of uh, deal with all the pandemic-related difficulties, funding mm-hmm. cuts, and um, and trying to get a hold of faculty who are are burned out on zoom and email um <laughs> yeah it's like the more time we spend on computers the longer it takes to answer an email That's and true. i'm absolutely guilty of that so um, yeah no you 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 said something very important which is um the role of the faculty in alleviating our you know uh challenges and i i, I want to seize the occasion to to really Thank once again my my committee. I had a wonderful committee. They were very supportive. Uh, they were they were more than committee members. Uh, Professor Fleming, Professor Masolo, uh, Professor Logan, uh, Professor Suleiman Bashir Jain. Uh, they 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 made a difference uh, uh, and made the process definitely a lot easier and. Yeah, it, it always helps. Uh, graduate students are always thankful when they have, you know, wonderful mentors and committee members and faculty supporting them through um, the challenges of grad school. Right? Um, Asu, how has your experience been uh, regarding navigating some of these, you know, challenges we just talked about? I think the the hardest part of 
Brad school for me is being away, being away from home, uh, from your family members, because I have a family back home and they cannot be here with me. So I have to navigate that, go back and forth and not being able to to be there all the time is really difficult in, in, in that sense. So thank God we have WhatsApp and all of these other outlets where we can at least still have connection with people and, you know, share our news and so on. Uh, as in terms of the, the academic life, I think Funding for, I mean, at least from the department I'm coming from is guaranteed for at least the five years when you get accepted, admitted to the program, you have that, actually you are assured. You don't have to worry about that as long as you're making progress towards your, your degree, which is kind of good. So you only have to worry by the time you're about to end those five years, yeah, you haven't, smart. you know, you haven't made the progress. So so far, uh, that's that, that has been really helpful. Uh, the challenge comes when it's summer, because there's no funding for summer. So you you'll have to you know hustle and find your ways uh, mm -hmm. through this this time. And the other thing is related to research funding most of the time if you're not doing field work related research uh, the amount of funding you can get is very limited and as uh, in also in terms of just like these categories like if you're working on africa or you know your your your, your funding is very limited there are only like a few uh, funding bodies that allocate money to people who are doing research in africa etc mm -hmm. so that also is 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 a challenge but i think uh, in my experience what has made this journey kind of easier is the fact that i'm in a department where most of the graduate students are you know from africa we all come from different parts of africa so we do have a sense of community kind of so at least you do have a support system that is there for you and who understand these different struggle that we can go through as international students etc so mm -hmm. that i'm thankful for that and also other faculty members who are you know dedicated to assisting and mentoring you and helping you through the program so that's that's like that has been a mm -hmm. really a really nice uh thing for me yeah that's great no you're right um students um who are also parents have a different uh yeah kind of challenge right yep. international students in general have also a different kind of challenge that unfortunately many departments are not aware of those that being an international student is challenging in itself you know when it comes to visa right when it comes to funding because we cannot have access to most fundings that are available to do just regular research even less research focused on africa and most of the time unfortunately some well some students some uh, universities do a great job of acknowledging those difficulties for international students for instance or students who are parents and and try to be more accommodating right but if you're not from one of those universities, uh, it, it becomes more of a challenge. 
very very interesting uh right so uh northwestern like the funding is uh it's decent you know it's pretty good like you got you guys bad. are rich we're not you're not even part of the conversation <laughs> <laughs> you you rich <laughs> northwestern du harvard you guys are rich you know <laughs> don't have funding issues hey so funding right now with covid and everything like you know it's a little bit tricky and but overall like you know i think uh, the package is nice the teaching load is not as bad as you were describing like you know wow like you know i was actually like shocked uh so the struggles for me the struggles that i've faced uh is just like uh how do i put it i mean just being uh 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 what do you call it i mean just trying to make it through right because sometimes we all these unnecessary pressures and like all these unnecessary uh wait the quarter system is the major challenge when i was actually taking uh when i was taking uh, coursework because mm. you basically go to class 10 times and it's over right so after the second class you were stressed by your midterm which is like 15 pages you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. after your sixth class like you better be working on your uh final paper which is like 25 pages all right so it just causes unnecessary stress on top of that you are teaching doing research and I, so the fall is even crazy because the fall to us everybody knows that's when everything is due in terms of like you know application for grants and whatnot right so you so like that 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 i would not advise anybody to be on a quarter system for uh yeah for grad school is it's horrible the only good thing is if you hate a class you blink and it's over you know <laughs> that's that's yeah. the only thing about yeah. but yeah so that's like you know one of the main challenges uh, i have i uh to be honest i have an amazing advisor so you know mm -hmm. when i have when i'm having problems uh, i'm able to go to him for him to address it but also like you know one question too that i kind of like you know deal with right is what does it mean to be black in certain spaces, right? And uh, you know, African studies, as we know, uh, is very dominated by like you know, white, right? So what does it mean to like you know be black in that space, right? At the same time, what does it mean like you know, also like when you are challenging certain peers, that sometimes it's not about the person being black, that they have the right to study Africa, right? That even Nkrumah, who's seen as this radical, you listen to Nkrumah's speech, thank this white guy for the work that he did in Ghana, right? So like, you know, African studies, how do you then like, you know, push onto people that African studies is a political project, right? That opens up to allow people who are genuinely invested in the project of liberation to participate, right? So moving away from this binary, right? Has been something that I have been dealing with, right? And uh, so you said something that I really liked when you were talking about agency, right? Sometimes one of the things I find myself in is that people don't actually understand context, right? So they try to take these like, you know, Western or American, like, you know, whether it's like, you know, feminist theories or whatnot, and try to map it on the African continent, which actually, um, in my humble opinion, right, to put it more eloquently, does not really fit because of different historical processes. I mean, you're talking about 
1920s women in the US getting the vote in Africa is a different ballgame, right? Especially those who inherit from the mother's side, right? So it's like, how do you deal with these things, right? How do we push against this hegemony, right? That seeks to, you know, try to make African problems into one and use these Western lenses to, you know, to address it. And this happens in black studies mm -hmm. and all these other spaces, right? So those are kind of the challenges that I face as a scholar. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting, right? On point. Uh... Now, before we jump to the next and final segment, what do you think or how would you address uh, administrators, uh, faculty and departments and universities in general to uh, help fix some of these issues or challenges that we're facing? Like if, if Nicholas, for instance, if he had to say, uh, to advocate for grad students uh, with regard to these challenges, what would you what would you say to administrators and and, and departments in general? Well, for one thing, um, I, I would definitely advocate for us having you know better insurance. Um, you know the, the the ability, yeah, the ability to 
or having having the option uh, at least you know to to be able to ensure our health is extremely important like margaret said um like you know we didn't we didn't have dental you know at 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 louisville we didn't have vision either and i'm like you know what grad school kind of killed my vision <laughs> so like reading staring at screens all the time like that's it, true that's true yeah, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And so luckily now I had to wait till I get a, a, a job so I can, you know, I can I can address, you know, the vision thing, you know, but definitely, definitely that um, I think we should also be paid um, fairly for our labor, um, especially, you know, if, if we're going to be teaching courses, teaching um, five courses a year, um, <clears throat> you know, and essentially you know, serving as assistant professors in, in your case, at least, you know, um, we, our, our pay should, should be somewhere more than what, what it is now, somewhere closer to, to that scale. So definitely that. And I think um, placing more emphasis on mentorship, um, you know, I, I understand, I understand that um, part of, you know, the, the, the hamster wheel is, you know, once you graduate, you know, and get into a position, you know, the clock restarts for tenure now, you know, and so you have to mm-hmm. kind of produce again. And so um, it, 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 it's really tough for uh, young professors and, and even professors that do get tenure uh, to devote the amount of time, you know, necessary to, to mentor graduate students the right way. I was blessed um as were you you know with 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 Tyler Fleming to to have have such a um great advisor great mentor um that was you know able to dedicate so much time um to to molding us and teaching us about the profession um and so i think you know having mentors that that are able to do that effectively encourage us and shepherd us through these processes, making that, you know, a, a large component of the job is, um, is something that um, I think we, we should emphasize and, and can do, you know, as, as, you know, professors of the future, you know, we can all emphasize that as well. But definitely that's something that I think administrators should start to emphasize now when we're thinking about hiring and stuff. So, yeah, I'll let the rest of, rest of the panel talk on that. Uh, Margaret, what about you? Uh, <clears throat> if I was an administrator or faculty advising administrators, I mean, I would just say that it's a, it's a hollow um, thing to talk about wanting to diversify your graduate student body without paying people adequately. Um, I'm in the position where I don't have to support a family at this point. Thankfully, I don't, I don't need to help out my family at the moment that frees up my resources to pay my rent. Um, I'm white, so I have access to a lot of systemic advantages. Um, If universities are really serious about wanting to diversify their graduate student body, meaning diversify in terms of race, in terms of age, um, in terms of people who have families, people who don't have families, then, then pay matters. You have to pay your graduate students. It's a liberation project. Um, 
And I would ask that administrators not assume that the average grad student is 22 years old with no responsibilities and a family that can supplement rent. I would ask that administrators not assume that the average graduate student is a US citizen um, or has, has access to systemic advantages um, that, that the traditional college population, meaning white and wealthy, has access to. Um, if, if universities are serious about this project um, of diversifying, and this is a conversation that has come up a lot in ethnomusicology in recent years, you must pay your grad students. It's the only way to, um, to address this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Asu, what, what about you? What, uh, what would be your take on that? Uh, what would advocacy for graduate students uh, look like? I definitely can, can add to this song about pay. I think that's 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 uh, one of the biggest struggle for TAs most of the time, or any graduate student in 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 American universities. I think sometimes we do like what we're doing. We're not getting that same you know type of rewards back. I feel like sometimes. Uh, we do more than actually people think that we do because most of the time people think you wake up and you just go to class and after you teach or you do whatever you know your work was supposed to be it's done but actually there's a lot of you know work that you do underground you know that even your faculty members or you know whoever is on top is not aware and most of the time those are you know additional work for you when you're dealing with students you're not just dealing with them on an academic level there's so many things that come you know with it too that you as as the TA because that's you're the person you know they had access to you know easily they they come and talk to you about other issues and et cetera, et cetera. So I think administratives mm -hmm. should be uh, more mindful about that aspect of, uh, of the job that we do. And also mm -hmm. as an international student, one thing that I can say is creating like a safer and a fairer environment for for workers, you know, like like me, for instance, who come in, you know, uh, from marginalized group and then you come you know there's a lot of uh, controlling a lot of policing in some ways within the academic uh, you know environment mm -hmm. that needs to be to be addressed I think Definitely. if we want to reach uh, the goal of a fairer of a more inclusive of a more you know uh, positive or whatever we want to call it, I think we need to address these issues that are related to how we treat the people, you know, who are at a lower rank, just because they're not, you know, professor yet, or, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of knowledge, they're not, you know, there, you know, the way you want them to be, or, you know, those type of things. So I think that's also something that, that needs to be, to be addressed. And I'm, when I say policing, I'm not just talking about policing in terms like the policing of ideas too, like mm -hmm. how, you know, as a graduate student coming from Africa or, you know, living there, growing up there, that's your perspective of the world. And, you know, just because you're in an environment where the hegemonic discourse is, 
very much westernized you have to adapt mm -hmm. to those you know realities which is problematic in so many ways so i think that also need to be addressed within mm. the academic uh bright uh, i mean to pick up on what you guys are saying i mean another thing too right is to pay attention when we talk because sometimes you say something in class and uh they will act as if they did not understand what you said. And somebody will say the exact same thing. And I seem like, <laughs> so I used to look at my friend, I see, ah, did I not just say this? <laughs> I You know, it happens all the time, you know? So mm -hmm. I think that's, 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 that's one major thing because it's been too consistent, you know? Yeah, uh, and I think it's because otherwise it makes you feel like, ah, are you also not a producer of knowledge? You know, yes. why? Mm -hmm. I, I'm like, it's, last time I kid you not, it happened three times within the span of two minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, my God, nah, 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 nah. y'all gotta do something to respect that, you know? So another thing too that Nick said, right? When I came to graduate school, I did not have any back problems, like, you know, any massive back problems. Like Nick uh, definitely will say he did not have any eye problems, you know? <laughs> now all these like hazard, you know, that is coming unnecessary stress. Like I said, like, you know, my friend came to grad school and then got off awesome, you know? So like, you better like, if you're going to make us sick, you better give us like good, you know, like health insurance. Yes. You know? Give us like you know vision, vision dental, dental massages. Oh. Why not? Right? Exactly. Are you guys okay with that? Massages. It's so important. <laughs> Access to, to free massages. <laughs> because like so many graduate students, I know having back problems. We can't even afford to go to a massage. You know, because that's like almost our rent. You know. Yeah. So, this. Like you know, real. You know, another thing that they also they don't consider, right, is international students pay more taxes. So the little stipend that we're getting already like yes. being taken, you know. So there's a lot of things that they really have to. And also, if you are going to bring, if you are going to accept minorities into your program, which there's nothing wrong, I definitely encourage it. You should put in place, you know, resources to ensure retention, you know. Because most mm -hmm. of the time, like, you'll bring, oh, this year we have a number of, like, you know, black people, or, like, you know, minorities. Boom. Less than a year, everybody's gone, you yeah. know? Because it's not, like, you know, real, like, retention, like, put into it. Yes. yes. With COVID, the first thing that we saw was the cutting of anything that had to do with black, you know? <laughs> Funding, you know? is <laughs> with departments, you know, there were debates about canceling like you know african-american departments like you know i think even purdue had tried to make a statement like that whereby there was protests and like you know people rallied and like they were able to stop like mm -hmm. but it shouldn't come to the point where people are rallying you know yes like, this is very important this is fundamental you know and uh if humanities as we are all engaged in is the study of humans well black lives this is central to that mission you know so I, I think I mean you guys have covered everything, but definitely like you know that money though we need that money you know like shoot yeah and better health insurance yeah right? health insurance and the respect 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. Awesome. All right. So, um, I want us to, to talk about like, uh, and, and this is the last segment, I promise, uh, to talk about a recent op-ed published by uh, Epstein, uh, criticizing the use of uh, the title doctor by Dr. Jill Biden, uh, Joe Biden's wife mm-hmm. and uh, first lady uh, to be. And Epstein wrote that uh, Dr. Jill Biden shouldn't use the title doctor and that no one should call himself right doctor unless he has dealt with a child. A problematic statement, uh, in my opinion. But given that we are doctors and doctors-to-be, this criticism could be directed to any of us right now, right? We're not medical doctors. Uh, We did not, or we're not working on uh, doctorates in medicine or pharmacy, or basically we will not be able to deliver babies in hospitals and stuff like that. I'm going to start with Bright because Bright is at Northwestern. Uh, how did people react to that? You know, like, uh, uh, we, we were joking around that, you know, the confidence of a white man can just say anything useless and it becomes news. You know, <laughs> that's one of the first things that <laughs> we said, you know. Uh, for me, I did not even bother to even entertain this issue, right? Because I would not even waste my time to engage engage with somebody saying this, right? Because what we do know for a fact, right? Is that some of us, the work that we do is actually a matter of life and death because black liberation is tied to like, you know, producing knowledge, right? That is tied to the liberation of black people around the world, right? That in itself is essential. You know, when people are going out and engaging like, you know, black lives matter, right? It is a life or death issue. So, so for somebody to even dedicate their lives to study these things, right? It's, I mean, we face epistemic violence in certain spaces all the time, right? It's essential that we hold these degrees. You know, certain, like uh, I had a very good um, friend who's, um, who's a professor by the name uh, Dr. Kim Gowan, right? Where she was talking about like, you know, sometimes as a black woman, right? You don't even have the privilege to even not be called doctor. Because I mean, when I walk, even myself as a graduate, when you walk into class, right? Some white people look at you like, what do you even know to come teach us? You know, <laughs> it's right. like, that's the thing, right? So, I mean, if you take even like black scholars, right? And they are teaching evaluation, especially at predominant white institutions, right? Most of them have low ratings. It's not like they're not great professors. It's just like by nature, black people, you know, white people have been taught that black people are not knowledge producers. So how dare you come stand in front of me to teach me what? Nah, you know, that's what people like, you know, be saying, right? And it's been ingrained in them, right? So I, I, I think like, you know, I think it's nonsensical, right? And if I have broken my back, Nick has broken his eye, you know, and you can't call us what? No, 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 no. You can be call us doctors. Exactly, Bamba. You know? No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy to get, right? I mean, being in grad school, we just mentioned all the difficulties that we have to go through. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, 
it's, it's crazy it's crazy yeah uh, still on that that uh issue of the opet right um in reaction to the opet two law professors from northwestern Stephen Lubet and Andrew Kopperman wrote in the Chronicle of Higher Education a piece uh, entitled That Op-Ed About Jill Biden is Awful, Northwestern's Response Might Be Worse. And in the, in the piece, they argue that uh, the way the English department reacted to the Op-Ed is a violation of academic freedom. And they write, I'm, I'm, quoting, them, I'm quoting them here, Uh, we believe that it is a serious violation of academic freedom to penalize a faculty member, including an emeritus one for expressing po- unpopular view. What do you guys think of their argument? Should academics be worried about, should worry that cancel culture might compromise one of the foundations uh, of academia, which is academic freedom? Nick? Well, I think... Um... I think as academics, I think, you know, that's what they say tenure is about, you know, is, is being able to have that academic freedom. And uh, I think, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinion and I'm able, you know, I'm entitled to telling you that it's a dumbass <laughs> opinion, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you know, that's my opinion. That's, and that's kind of the work that we do, um, you know, as, as, as scholars, especially in, in black studies is, you know, we come in and we provide context, you know, to, to, to a lot of these statements um, uh, and, and, and expand the way that, we, that the way that we look at things. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, because I have my own uh, ideas about cancel culture. I mean, because people can be canceled for anything, you know, and it, 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 whether or not, you know, it's on, on a liberal side, you know, or if it's on a, from a conservative perspective as well. You know, and so that's something that we'll have to gripe with and, and, and deal with, figure out how we're going to deal with culture around, um, you know, the way that we exchange ideas, you know, in our, in our public discourse. Um, so it, it's, it's going to be difficult, um, but we, we have to do that and, and lead that charge as, as scholars at, at universities where we say that, you know, we're all about um, the, the exchange of ideas. Um, and so, you know, the, the way I look at it is academia is like a brick wall, you know, and, and we as scholars, you know, we kind of all add our brick to the wall, you know, and, and, and this wall is, you know, it represents knowledge, the understanding of the world, you know, and, and, and so everyone's opinion should absolutely be included, you know, and recognize part of it, you know, even if it's wrong, you know, and we have to we have that, we have that, um, responsibility to, to call that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Asu, what's your take on it? Because, uh, more and more we're seeing, yes, people expressing unpopular ideas, uh, especially academics, uh, and, and being, uh, canceled or, um, being victim of retaliation, for instance. We also recently saw the instance of um, Timnit Jebru, the AI specialist at Google, uh, who, for instance, co-published a paper about some of the challenges that uh, artificial intelligence might pose uh, in the future, and then lost her job 
right, for an academic paper she published, uh, basically, should we be worried as future, as academics and future researchers and producers of knowledge that our ideas will be canceled or might be canceled because of opposition to them? Should we be worried? So I think uh, that question is, is kind of tricky because sometimes it speaks to who is getting canceled because some people still have the privilege to say whatever they want and nobody is going to cancel them, right? So when we take this example, for instance, about this, you know, the, this doctor comment and, and all of that, I don't think he's going to get canceled or anybody who's, look at who's coming and defending him. I don't think if he was a person of color, he would get the support he's getting from, you know, these other academics who comes and say, oh, we should not be canceling people for their ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I think even within this cancel culture, it, it comes with a lot of bias, you know, mm. not, you know, some people do still have the privilege to go on and say things that they want without, you know, any, you know, repercussion that impacts them directly. But I think we, we are living in a moment where uh, it's just that one needs to, to know what they're saying and be careful about what they say, what, what they say and where, where they have to say it, right? Mm -hmm. But still in that way, I just feel like the cancel culture is already problematic in many ways because how come him i mean his that idea was taken you know somebody wrote this thing published it you know and everything why is it that he still gets to say those things and use you know all these medical excuse to say you know one should not have a doctor call doctor just because he's not you know delivering a baby i think there's a lot of nonsense in that and it's like it's just pure sexism for me like that's just it because i don't think if uh you don't see that discourse with for instance when you look at uh, uh senator uh, harris's like husband for instance nobody is talking about how he should be called like what name should be you know given to him as you know a second you know man or i don't know whatever the term is <laughs> in that case like no one talks about that why is it that when it's a woman who comes uh with the baggage like with this thing this title that they've worked and earned we still want to reduce them and you know keep them at their lowest and just maintain them at the status of you know you're just a woman you're just his wife no mm. she earned her title and she has every single right to to maintain that so yeah. i think this cancel culture to me is especially the way it's done in the us it's there's a lot of bias in there not everybody get canceled some people do have the privilege to still, to still say nonsense and remain you know in mm -hmm. the public eyes while others you know don't mm -hmm. margaret what's your take on it i think you're i think you're spot on astu like i think that that's exactly right i um i think that it's a very specific kind of gendered discourse um, and this guy hasn't I mean he's been this is not the first time he said stuff like this this is not the first I was just reading today that there he wrote about a, a female student coming to him 
and and referring to another professor by their first name. And he inferred from that that there was an inappropriate relationship going on between the two of them. Um, oh. and, and he wrote an op-ed about this and, and made that accusation about the student based only on that. I mean, he's been doing this for a long time and he hasn't been canceled yet. Um, but I also wonder, um, back to back to your, your question, Bamba, that I think you were um, leaning to, or leading toward whether this is an something about free speech in the universities or how we how we uphold ideas and it's been very interesting for me the last few years wondering whether universities are sort of what we traditionally think of as institutes of higher education or whether they're businesses um, and in many ways they function like businesses and i don't i'm not prepared to take a side or make any kind of argument for this but i think if they are institutions of higher education then he needs to be able to say whatever he wants, as we all do. If they are businesses, then his speech has consequences, um, which I, that's probably a really unnuanced and sort of blunt way to put it. I'm not totally sure that I stand behind that, but I, I wonder about the interesting distinction because if he faces blowback for this, it's because universities now function like businesses and, um, and, mm -hmm. and they have their own business sort of quota to uphold yeah i mean very uh interesting takes uh people definitely um value freedom uh but they also value respect right mm -hmm. and at the end of the day it's a model of respect and yes he can write whatever he wants and uh but where is the respect in in all of that you know sometimes it's it's just it's just decency, you know. She earned her degree, and uh, I don't even know if him, uh, Epstein, is qualified to talk about that, given that he doesn't have a PhD. Does he even have a master's? I don't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, yes, people enjoy freedom. They want that. But we also, your freedom stops where mine starts, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the day, we owe each other respect, right? So, and I usually end my, uh, the show uh, with, you know, lighter questions. Uh, so the first one being, what are three books, you've, uh, novels, uh, top three novels you've, you've ever read, right? We'll start with Nick, top three novels. See. top three novels that is tough um let me see number one i'd say Ngugi watiango's dreams in a time of war mm -hmm. um what else there novels you can't just you can't just be any book i mean <laughs> novels yeah um i mean okay okay we'll we'll make an exception for you <laughs> I'll make an exception. <laughs> I would rather be novel novels, but uh, I'll make an exception for you. Okay. Um, I know you've been reading, next... reading a lot of history stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I think I think after that would probably be Amy Cizier's discourse on colonialism. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and I think 
discourse sur le colonialisme. It's a yeah. good one. And then, then after that, I would probably say um, Chancellor Williams' uh, destruction of African civilization. Mm, the destruction of African civilization. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret, top three novels. Uh, this is so hard. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think um, maybe obviously Mariam Abbas and Silong Let mm -hmm. um, is one of them. It's and then, a great classic. Yeah. Um, Suleiman Bashir Jang's African Art as Philosophy. Mm -hmm. That's one that really has, has altered my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then one I, I recently... Him. <laughs> one I recently read that I just can't quite get out of my head is um, Andre Brink's A Dry White Season. Mm. Um, that one, it's it's a recent read for me, but it's it's one that I keep I keep kind of turning over in my mind. A great book, A Dry White Season, Andrew Brink. Uh huh. Uh, Asu, what about you? Top three novels. This is really hard, so I don't <laughs> even know if this is if this is my truly top you know three but i'm just gonna say uh so long a letter of course yeah i'll say the color purple yeah and then i'll say americana americana uh chimamanda right yeah awesome yeah uh bright and this is hard this is hard you know but uh, i'll say joyce of motherhood oh that's a good yeah. one Yes, sir. A grain of wheat. Googie again. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, kite runner. Mm-hmm. Who? Uh, by by who? Uh oh, he's an Afghan American. Okay. The the name escapes me. Uh, yeah, the name, but excellent. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll look it up for sure. Yeah, like you know, like yeah, those like Invisible Man is also excellent. You know, Ellison. Yeah. I just recently read it again uh, during the summer. Yeah. Um, good. Those, those are all wonderful books. Top three dishes. Rice, rice, and rice. <laughs> <laughs> Bright and rice, rice, and rice. <laughs> hey, you I don't blame you. What? <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I could, I, well, in fact, as a matter of fact, as a Senegalese, I eat rice every day. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, you eat rice every day. Oh my God. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Nick. Okay. Um, let's see. Number one, it's the Jamaican in me, Aki and Sawfish. That's 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 number one for me. Oh. Uh then I have to say uh pepper pot. That's a Guyanese dish. Okay. So that's on my yeah, it's on the Guyanese side of my family. And then after that, may have to go with a goosey stew. Okay. Yeah. Can you cook all those yeah. all those dishes you name, Nick? Not pepper pot. Not okay. pepper pot. I don't know how to do that one yet. I'm still amassing my uh, my recipe book. But um, it's funny. I can't even eat the first two because I'm vegetarian now. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So, you, you, I guess you will have to give us that vegetarian stuff. 
Any so vegetarian? My my vegetarian. I mean, you list? could make anything vegetarian these days, right? I don't know if I would want to desecrate pepper pot by making it. Oh, <laughs> <vegetarian>. really? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, so, well, we'll we'll stuck with the three then. Yeah. Okay. Margaret. Um, my favorite dish growing up was Hop and John. Okay. Black eyed peas and rice. Uh-huh. Um, and then Chebuginar, game changer. Um, Chebuginar, what, what is, can you, can you explain what Chebuginar is to our rice, rice and chicken. Yeah, from Senegal. Yeah. Hey, we have um, the best food. <laughs> Sorry, Bright. <laughs> Ghana has good food too. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Hop and John. Know, Senegal second. <laughs> no, I think Senegal is number one. Then Ghana number two. <laughs> Then we can talk about, we'll see if Nigeria is in, is still in the game, you know? In Africa, of course. <laughs> so, Margaret, uh, you have one left. Uh, do, this is a really American question, but do chocolate chip cookies count as a dish? No. Oh. no. <laughs> I'm talking out of the last question. Not in my realm, okay? I was not expecting that. All right, so you have to give me real food. Not not sweets, not des- uh, desserts. So yeah, real stuff. I'm with Bright on this rice, rice. What kind of rice? Any kind of rice. It doesn't matter. White rice? Any kind. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll serve you white rice <laughs> if you visit. <laughs> right? White rice, plain white rice. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, well, you said you liked it. Uh huh. Asu. So my number one is supukanja, which is the okra soup, like the Senegalese okra soup. Second, with palm um, oil. Yes, with palm oil, you know, and seafood. Uh-huh. And then my second like, would be, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead, go ahead. The second would be uh, Bryce's favorite thing, the chebujin, the rice <laughs> Senegalese one. <laughs> chebujin. Yeah, that, that Guineans and Nigerian called jollof rice. Exactly, the, we're the, the original yeah. once again, and it's called chebujin. <laughs> so that would be second, and the last one I would say mafe. Oh, mafe. Peanut butter sauce. Oh, oh. Butter sauce. <laughs> oh. Okay. yes. Ah, good choices, Asu. Good choices. Bright, do you still That's stick good. with rice, rice, rice? <laughs> so I you want to give specificities yeah so i do like you know in ghana we have this thing called wache mm-hmm. so it's also basically rice and beans cooked together nice. <laughs> so it's so <laughs> uh jollof uh-huh. being one which is cheb- chebujin yeah chebujin <laughs> you know yes, just call it chebujin and <laughs> chebujin And then I will, I'll probably say like, you know, rice ball and good soup mm. or chicken soup. Yeah. That's cool. No, you, you right. You still rice, rice, rice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rice, 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 my brother. <laughs> All right. And then the last one, top three places you haven't visited yet, but would love to visit. That's tough. Nick. Um, let's see. Senegal. Okay. You have a oh place to stay. Uh, Let's go. Yeah. 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 Have to do that. 
Um, <laughs> thank you. I will. Hey, I will be there for sure. Um, after that, probably Moscow, Patrice mm-hmm. Lumumba University. All of yeah. those sites. Um, definitely want to see that, and then probably Tokyo. Nice Japan. Uh, one yeah, of the man. places I want to yeah. visit too. Margaret. Same here. <laughs> I think top on my list is the Kazumas in Senegal. Okay. I haven't ever been, and I, I keep hearing how beautiful it is. Uh huh. Um, the south of uh, Senegal. Mm hmm. Um, second would be Zanzibar. Okay. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. I've heard that that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I'd like to see Scotland. Scotland? Mm-hmm. Okay. Nice. Asu. Top is Brazil. Brazil. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I'll say Nigeria, second. Nigeria. Mm-hmm. What? You want to go there to eat jollof rice? <laughs> Hope not. I want to go discover this hyperbasis jollof rice over there. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> hey, Nigerian Nigerian president agrees that we have the best. So you could yeah. do something else, but don't go they there. They even took the name, you know, and they, the they think jollof is Yoruba. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm like, the name is is Wolof. The name is Senegalese. Senegalese. Yeah. Yeah, so, and the last one would be China. China, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Those, are, those are all cool places that I would love to visit someday myself. Uh, uh, Bright. Mauritius. Yes. China and South Africa. Mauritius, China, and South Africa. Yes, sir. Wonderful. And on that note, I thank you all for... Um, being my guest on the Africanist, it was wonderful to catch up with you guys and you know see your beautiful faces again. I really hope that we can get together physically sometime soon, um, to hang out and catch up, you know, and start conferencing again and and do all this, you know, that good pre-pandemic uh, stuff. So thank you very much. I. Hope that you guys will come back uh, on the show sometime soon to talk more about your research um, and about uh, Africana slash Black studies and you know current issues. Uh, so thank you very much, and I will talk to you sometime soon. Kondiamo Africa, mon lanyan. Maneggiamo Africa, moi sogno natange.